Hello, this is Charles Hain on May 2nd, 2019 with the No Film School podcast. This week, writers versus agents, humans versus zombies, cats and dogs living together. Also, was Game of Thrones too dark? A LUT for lights? And should you ever put forward work that you aren't 100% super proud of in public? All of that and more this week on the No Film School podcast. So, our top story this week, it's been a couple weeks since there's been big news in this arena, but we've got to cover it anyway because it is just the biggest news and we haven't been doing a news podcast lately. And for some of you, we know that this is the only way you're following what's happening in the film industry, which, total respect, if you are so busy working that you're not reading the trades, good on you. Complete respect. But we really have to talk about the battle between agents and writers. This is one, I mean, going to be honest, I love agents and representation but this is one where there's like a real clear, if you are pro-union, pro-organized labor, like pro people getting paid what they do, even if you're not like super pro-union, this is one where there's like a real clear, the whole point of an agent is to work in people's best interests side. So the agents have all been fired by the writers. The Writers Guild of America got together and fired the agents. So a little bit of backstory on this. People are always asking about representation, agents, writers, that kind of thing. The purpose of an agent is to negotiate on your behalf, right? I would like to work for someone, and I would simultaneously really like to work for someone, and I would like them to pay me properly. You can be more aggressive in your negotiation if you are not simultaneously the person who has to work with them, right? If you're able to be like, all right, I love this concept, I love this idea, Let's, let me write this script, it'll be so great, and then the agent calls, and they can go gorilla and get really aggressive and negotiate for you, and they're incentivized to do it because they're taking 10%. They're taking a cut of your money. So, the traditional model has been, agents are out there working for you, they want to get you more money because they're taking a cut of it, so the more you make, the more they make, and also, agents have also really been relationship builders for a large number of people. Agents tend to know everybody all around town. So if you're a young writer in this specific case and, you know, you manage to get your script read and they decide to represent you and they try to send it out, they're going to be able to send it out to a lot of people. They're going to be able to set up some introductions. They're going to be able to negotiate for you. It is a longstanding relationship in Hollywood, 100 years. And it's sort of a heavily structured one. It's very regulated. Like, traditionally, agents haven't been allowed to produce, right? A manager can produce, but an agent can't really produce. But agents can negotiate contracts legally in California, as opposed to, you know, a lot of people just have their lawyer do their contract. You don't actually officially need a lawyer to do a contract. An agent can represent you in a contract negotiation in California. It's been a relationship that's worked really well because both people benefit, right? The writer gets to meet with the studio boss or meet with the network executive and just talk creative and ideas and live in that pure space of creativity. And then the agent comes in and is like, pay my writer the money she deserves. So it's like a really good working situation. For a while now, however, agents have been double dipping, kind of. So they get the 10% from the writer. 
But agencies have also started doing this thing called packaging, where they put together like, hey, what if we have a writer and a director, or we have like a showrunner and and other episode directors, or, or stars at our agency, because we are all parts of these big agencies now, they're all these big massive agencies. So what if we go out to the big massive pile of agencies and we say, okay, there's all these actors that we can package on the show, so we're gonna get this writer and this actor and we're gonna put them all together into a package, and then we're gonna take a packaging fee, right? which is sort of a conflict of interest. Because the packaging fee generally means that they're competing against their own writers, right? Are they negotiating for the better packaging fee or are they negotiating for the writer to make more pay? And what people have noticed is that with the rise of packaging, writers are actually making less money. There's an amazing, if you haven't seen it, you should go check it out on David Simon's amazing blog. David Simon tells this amazing story about in the beginning of his career, he got packaged. And he is still with the same agency, but he was really pissed when he found out later that he had been packaged and that the, in his mind, it is very likely because he was a young and unknown writer, he got a much smaller fee than he would have if his agent had only been negotiating for him and not for themselves and for the benefit of the other people at the agency. The agent took his book and put it together with a director from their agency who wanted to do TV stuff and then was able to package it and it cut into what David Simon made. And it's a conflict of interest. You want a doctor who's only interested in your health, not in pharmaceutical company profits, right? You want a lawyer who is negotiating only for you, not also negotiating for the judge. Having agents that also package conflict of interest, and now three of the biggest agencies are starting their own production companies, which are then producing content. So now you have a writer that's like negotiating with the agency trying to get more money and the agent's supposed to be the person trying to get you that more money. So the writers, God bless the Writers Guild of America, the writers got together and about a week and a half ago said, all right, we're firing the agents. Uh, and then a couple days ago, the reason why this is the still the top story we have right now is they are suing them in civil court in California. So the Writers Guild of America are suing the ATA, the Association of Talent Agents, for violation of... Uh, the Taft-Hartley Act and some other things that sort of like some other laws that sort of outline why conflicts of interest shouldn't be happening in this situation. And they are suing and they are saying, nope, we are going to collectively, because collective action is how we actually get things. Uh, when you don't have power, groups have power. When individuals don't have power, the WGA is grouping together and saying, nope, we would like to actually be able to make a living doing this job in the most second most expensive city in North America. Although in some ways, as a New Yorker, LA is even more expensive. And they are stepping away from the previous contract and suing the agents for conflict of interest. Now, negotiations are going to continue. By all accounts, this is going to get worked out. Everybody is feeling like there might be some continuing negotiation. There might be something. But the WGA, the vote was overwhelming among WGA members that they want agents who are just representing them. They want agents that are not in it for themselves that are there as representatives of the writers and negotiating in their best interest because they want that 10% bite. You know you're in trouble when they're willing to give up the 10%. When the agency's like, we're going to forego your fee in order to get this packaging fee, well, that's dangerous. You want them wanting your fee. That taste of your fee incentivizes them to make your fee as big as it can be. I mean, that's the whole beauty of representatives. I, I, I remember I got offered something once and um, I talked to the person repping me in the negotiation and he was like, you know, agents are wonderful 
this wasn't an agent. In this specific case, it was an entertainment lawyer. But entertainment lawyers and agents are so great because they know the lay of the land. They know it's fair. As soon as I got on the call with this entertainment lawyer, he was like, nope, that offer is way too low. And within an hour, the, the offer tripled. Within an hour. Because he knew what the market was and he knew what people should be paying. That's what you want out of agents and managers and lawyers. So in this case, the WGA is now encouraging people to have their lawyers do their contracts. Um, hilariously, the ATA said, if you're worried about conflict of interest, you should have your lawyer also looking over your contracts. But the whole point of an agent is that you shouldn't also have to pay a lawyer to do it. Um, and interestingly, in terms of the new media landscape, this is a podcast promoted as part of No Film School and New Media, they're doing an online script submission service because they're like, all right, well, agents have traditionally helped people read scripts and 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 whatnot and find each other and develop relationships. So they're doing an online sort of script submission thing. I don't know how it's vetted. It'll be interesting to see if it works. It's going to be very complicated, I'm sure. I think we would all like the agents back doing their jobs. Uh, I think we're all hopeful that some way that's able to work out. But it's also really interesting that the WGA is like, no, we'll figure out new media ways to do it. If you won't do it for us, we'll figure out a new way to do it. And we'll use our lawyers and, and we'll work it out. Um, you want representatives who are advocating for your best interest. And right now with double dipping, that's a uh, double dipping is the wrong way to put it. Right now there's a conflict of interest. Agents Agencies are working both against you and for you. And that's problematic. And so I'm really excited watching this whole story play out. And I think that you guys should all continue to pay attention to this. If you're WGA and you've participated in firing your agent or the entire sort of like uh, holding firm and we're going to work around you until we figure this out and participate in the lawsuit, good for you. Uh, if you are a writer or even if you're not a writer, you should, uh, read a little bit more and the newsletter will send out a link to the story because it's a really fascinating, important story that uh, – really says a lot about how the landscape is changing. It's funny because I keep hearing stories about like, well, this is all about digital media and this is all about packaging. But packaging has been around at least the 90s, if not the 80s. Digital media, I mean, we're 10 years past the digital media strike. Like this isn't for me a story of technology changing something. This is literally a story of like slow business creep. Like we had very strong unions and we had very strong guilds and they wouldn't let this shit fly. And then slowly it gets worn down and then you have to like fight it back up and then it slowly gets worn down again and you have to fight it back up. And I don't think this is necessarily technology driven so much as this is negotiation driven. And the WGA has banded together and said, nope, we want representatives working in our best interest. And I think that's uh, totally awesome and a very worthwhile fight to have. All right. The next story this week is Game of Thrones was too dark. Now, usually, this is sort of a weird one in that there's like a tech angle to it, but we're going to treat it not as a tech angle. We're going to treat it as a filmmaker angle. Because uh, I know some of you who are like, ah, I don't care about tech, are going to skip the tech story every week. Total respect. This is really a filmmaker angle. And what it's really about is about the pain and frustration of being a filmmaker and having a very small amount of control over the last stage in the pipeline. So basically what happened, Game of Thrones had an episode they'd been building to for eight years, uh, the Battle of Winterfell. It's like the, you know, undead zombie folks fighting against the humankind. If you're not watching Game of Thrones, that all sounds ridiculous. If you watch Game of Thrones, it's actually something we were really excited about. It's a beautiful episode, well-directed. Um, I mean, it's phenomenal, but it was really dark. Now, the internet exploded with this. There are all sorts of great memes about like not being able to see what's going on and like practically every review mentioned it. Except what's interesting about it is if you scroll down to the comments of those reviews, about half of the comments are like, it wasn't too dark for me. I saw everything fine. And I got to be honest, I thought it was too bright. And here's what I think happened. 
when you work in a perfectly calibrated color suite, you're aware that no one else is ever gonna see it in a perfectly calibrated color suite again. And most people do some sort of testing in non-calibrated suites, and I guarantee you Game of Thrones is doing some sort of like, let's watch it at the last end of the pipe. But you can't control for every last step of the pipe. So if people's TVs are set too dark or they're set too contrasty, you're gonna run into a whole lot more problems than you might normally run into in this kind of situation. If the final end user's pipe is too dark, you're gonna run into all sorts of problems, and if it's too contrasty. And the bigger problem is that everybody who's watching this on streaming and so many of the complaints were coming from HBO Go. And one thing that happens, anybody who's worked on a horror movie or any kind of dark movie knows, when you're getting a lot of compression artifacts, when you're compressing a lot, one of the things you lose is you lose a little contrast and you lose a little shadow detail. So I think what happened is Game of Thrones HBO servers were wildly overstressed. The compression got crazy in order to make sure that they were feeding the streams to all the people who were watching it simultaneously. And many people got a more highly compressed stream. And in that highly compressed stream, I think they lost a lot of shadow detail and they weren't able to see what they wanted to see. And I think that's a tremendous discredit to the show that was done by not having a robust enough infrastructure, which like, look, I get it's hard to build an infrastructure that can handle that kind of traffic. But I don't personally hold it against the filmmakers because for instance, I'm a nerd and I'm very into display calibration and I have a very nicely set up, it's a $500 TV. I don't have like a $4,000 LG OLED, but I have a four thousand. I have like a $400 TV that is very new and very well, set, like as well set up as I could set it up within the boundaries of what an affordable TV can do. And I was watching it and I was like, ah, you guys went too bright and you played it safe. That was my thought. I literally was watching a scene and I was like, oh, you guys went too safe. You went too bright because you were nervous that people wouldn't see information. And I, I would be willing to bet $100 that in the suite there were long conversations about how bright to go to give that dark feeling of the long night that they wanted, but still preserve the ability of most people to see it. Um, However, there's no way to do a full-scale test of let's have 8 million people watch all of this at once, right? When you build a new stadium, I remember they built a new stadium when I was growing up, and there was a day where they invite every, all the fans to come in to all flush the toilets at once, right? So that we could be, they could test the plumbing system, make sure it all works. There's no way to do that with 8 million streams or however many people watch the Battle of Winterfell. I'm very confident in that filmmaking team's ability to have done a tremendous volume of testing. I am very confident that they made a decision to play it very safe and go a little bright, honestly. Because when I watched it on my calibrated machine over Roku TV, so the HBO Now app, I thought, okay, you guys played it safe, respect. And yet a lot of people, it was too dark. And I think we're going to have to blame streaming infrastructure because there was just the episode is the test, right? Now, you can certainly argue there have been night scenes in previous episodes, Um this particular show was almost entirely night scenes, and there was a three dragons fighting against dark clouds sequence that was uh, bold, and it's like, I didn't find myself thinking that scene is too dark. <laughs> I mean, too bright. I, I definitely was watching that scene, and I was like, okay, okay, you guys are walking a line here. Um, it's tough as a filmmaker. This is one of our biggest frustrations as filmmakers. I mean, there's many frustrations as filmmakers. How come we can't get financing more easily? How come people don't like the same movies? We like all of these things. But one of them is like, I make this thing and I dial in and I make it look perfect. And then I watch it on my cousin's laptop and it looks totally too dark or too bright or the oranges look weird and it's just the pain of film. 
Um, it's why George Lucas invented THX, so that all the theaters would look the same. And one of the beauties of theatrical projection is it tends to be very consistent theater to theater. Home systems are not like that, and it's like a real frustration when they're doing something bold like this. I personally, based on the information in front of me, uh, I think they made a safe set of choices. I don't hold anything against the filmmakers. I think that the uh, people who build the streaming infrastructure for HBO definitely are going to be investing more heavily in higher bandwidth in order to be able to handle this kind of thing in the future. And I think we're going to see, uh, well, hopefully some of the AT&T money will help with that. All right, up next, tech news. Uh, so uh, we're only going to do one tech news story a week in this new format. Our one tech news story this week, uh, we're going to try and do the highest traffic story. We're going to see like what readers really dug, and we're going to relay that to listeners. Um, and one of our biggest traffic stories this week, hands down, Relio 2. What is Relio 2, you ask? So it's a tiny little LED cube light. There are a lot of tiny little LED cube lights made by a variety of people. So what's so interesting about this one is that they have gone full nerd geek in the making of it. It's an Italian company. It's a very small company. And they are bringing to the mass market very specialized lighting. So, for instance, they're bringing very beautiful lights you can use in film and video, but it's the first light that I'm really aware of that allows you to custom make a LUT and build a LUT and load a LUT into it in order to get higher levels of color accuracy. So most, um, it's exactly like when you're calibrating a monitor. When you're calibrating a monitor, you're using like the borders of it to get it really close, and then you're using a LUT to get it perfectly where you want. It's the same with this light. Like they're building the physical infrastructure of the light to be as good as they can, like TLCI 98. Very accurate, very good color reproduction. And then you can load a LUT into it to get TLCI 100. Presumably, you'll also be able to check the light over time, and if it drifts, maybe put in a new LUT as the bulb ages, although LEDs get 5,000 to 20,000 hours, so it's going to take a long time for that to age. On top of that, it's really interesting because presumably this means you could custom build LUTs to really accurately mimic a variety of light sources. So you walk into a supermarket, You've got to shoot a scene. You've got all these overhead fluorescents. You want a little eye light. You want it to match the overhead fluorescents. So if you, say, have to time the green out of the overhead fluorescents, it also is matched by the floor light. You take some readings, you build a light, you plug it in. It's super cool. Also super cool, and this will not be very useful to filmmakers, but it is very useful to, like, camera testing nerds, is they are selling uh, an R, a G, and a B that is just that wavelength of light, a red, a green, and a blue that's, like, single wavelength emission. Um... Why is this interesting to camera nerds? Well, like, for instance, cameras are getting more sensitive. Like, we're seeing something like the Panasonic Farrakam, more sensitive camera. That camera, more sensitive, is seeing what's called shot noise, S-C-H-O-T-T. And that noise is from the wavelength of light. And so, like, when I tested the Farrakam, I tested it at 5,000 ISO in pure red and pure green and pure blue. And But I did that with just, like, an RGB LED, and I tried to make it a single wavelength as possible, but it wasn't perfect. Whereas now I can pick up that RGB set and I can do really interesting testing on a camera. I bet there's going to be some scenario where you can do something super cool cinematography-wise you couldn't do otherwise because of those single ones. Uh, if you have an idea for what you want to do, let me know on Twitter. I think I'm going to try and get some review units to play with for a week or two this summer um, from Relio. So yeah, hit me up on Twitter. Uh, or the Facebook, if you have ideas for stuff that you could only do by having single wavelength LEDs, because that's super cool. All right, up next, Ask No Film School. Emil Scanning asks, I want to get a job at a production company. I've done short films, but while they're getting better, they aren't professional quality yet. Should I show them 
in my applications to these production company jobs. I also have Photoshop and Illustrator skills. No, it's like the easiest question ever. So here's the thing. You know they're not as good as they could be. You know they're not as good as you will eventually be able to make. You look at it and you're like, I need to get better at this. I can get better in this. I believe in myself, but I'm not better yet. Do not send them along in a job application because until they've met you, they're going to look at it and they're going to assume that's where you are and because you included it in a job application that you think that's professional quality. And if they see, oh, that's where this person is and that's where they think they want to work on, they're not even going to hire you to be anywhere in the office, right? They're not even going to hire you as like the, the trash taking up person you said in your question. So I am a firm believer in you can talk about your long-term ambitions in job interviews. That's totally fine. Everybody knows everybody in the film industry wants to make stuff. Totally fine. You can even wait. You can say in a job interview, I just want to work in movies. I'm excited about the industry. And not say, and I'm going to be an Oscar-winning director. You don't have to shout that out in an interview if you don't want. And then once you get the job and you've made friends with people, you can talk about your directing ambitions and the things you want to do. And you can say, I've made something. It's not as good as I want it to be. Can you look at it and give me feedback and try and help me make it better? Help me so that on my next one it's better. And people love mentoring each other. So that is a totally reasonable thing. But you shouldn't put it in the job application. Because you got to remember, every time, like when I had a production company, every time we posted a job ad, we would put up a job ad with, Within, you know, we first off, you don't advertise very often for jobs when you're in a production company because 90% of the jobs you have, you know someone who wants, right? You always know somebody who is hunting for a job in the film industry. But every once in a while, you're hiring an office manager, you're hiring a PA or something, and you would advertise. Within an hour, we'd have 50 applications, and we'd just go do them as quickly as we can looking for someone who jumped out. And if you've got a link, we'll click on it. And if it's not your strongest work, or if it's not, even if it is your strongest work, if it's not work as strong as you think you are capable of, it's just going to be a strike against you. So I would really focus on, you mentioned that you also have Photoshop and Illustrator and other skills. I'd focus on that because those are the kind of things that are always really useful in a production company, right? If it's a production company, they're going to be making party invites. They're going to be making end cards for things. They're going to be making lower thirds. They're going to be making all of that. So somebody's like, oh, I'm already great at Photoshop and Illustrator. That's something where I, as a production company, I'm like, oh, you're an asset. Let's get you in the door. You'll be a post PA. We'll get you working. And then, of course, we know everyone wants to make stuff. And if you come to us and you're like, hey, I'm thinking about making a thing then we're totally open to that conversation. That's certainly something that like you can find a way to broach gently. But I, I think it's tricky to lead with it, and I would really discourage you from leading with it. I think it's, I think it's a great question for us in a film school, um, and I think it's something that you really want to be very careful about who you show work to as you are growing, right? At a certain point, we're all going to make work that we're like, this is good enough to go out in the world, and I'm ready to face the slings and arrows of everyone's um, feedback. But in the beginning, when we're just learning and we're trying to figure it out and we're trying to grow and we're trying to become who we are going to be as filmmakers, I think it's very careful that you pick good people to share that work with. And I don't think it's necessarily going to help you in a job application. I think it's something that will either be neutral or hurt you. And if it has the potential to hurt you but it can't help you, then I wouldn't even bother doing it.
So that is it for the newly rebooted No Film School podcast. Uh, let us know on all of the social media outlets what you think about the new format. It's a little different. It's a little shorter. It's one host. We're going to bring in guests. It's not only going to be me, but uh, it's going to be a one-host show with sort of special guests for special topics. So reach out to us on the Facebook, on the Twitter, on the YouTubes if you've got thoughts on whether or not this format is going to work for you. Um, and then if you want more tech news, you can always check out my other tech podcast, The Week in Film Tech, which is only film tech news. But if you do that and you don't listen to the No Film School podcast, you're going to miss out on all of the other great stories like Agent versus Writers, which doesn't really have a technical component, but is a fun battle royale we should all be caring about. So I will see all of you next week, May 9th, on the No Film School podcast.